Today we close out our study of the book of Nehemiah, um, which is very fitting uh, for today, and I hope that will make sense as to why it, it's, uh, it's very fitting and helpful that we are closing out Nehemiah uh, as we enter into Advent season. If you haven't been around uh, this semester, we've been studying, studying the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament um, for the last three or so months. Let me give you just kind of a brief recap of where we've been, because it really does help us understand this conclusion of the book that we're gonna study today as we lead into Advent. So, God's people have been captive in the land of Babylon. They were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, which is now the Persian Empire. And there's this small group of people that gets to be set free to go back home to their homeland, Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, to begin to rebuild it, to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, the temple of God. And so there's this kind of hope and excitement that is stirring. And then uh, that project gets shut down, that project gets thwarted, and the city gets burned to the ground. And Nehemiah is still in captivity. He is a very noble uh, high-ranking man in the Persian Empire, but he gets word that his homeland on the rebuild project has been burnt down. So he gets this fire in his belly, he gets this passion in his bones to say, I am to be the one to go back and rebuild God's city, rebuild the walls, protect it, secure it, and then rebuild God's people inside this new city of Jerusalem. And tied with uh, this rebuild project is not just, hey, I wanna go rebuild Jerusalem because it's a great place to live. Tied up in this rebuild project is a huge macro story that's going on in the world that God has said, my people, my Israelite people, my covenant people are to be the people that join with me to bring shalom to the world. My people are to be the people that bring the, the, the ethics and the beauty of my kingdom to the world to heal and mend what sin has destroyed. And so this rebuild project carries with it this huge weight that says to the world, says to God's people, maybe God hasn't given up on his promises. Maybe God hasn't given up on his people. And so there's this excitement, there's this, there's this giddiness, there's this, oh my goodness, maybe the story isn't over. Maybe God's people could actually be God's people yet again, and maybe we could help restore the world for what sin has destroyed. So Nehemiah returns home. Nehemiah has this troop, uh, 30 or 40,000 folks that come with him and they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They are rebuilding it socially, they're rebuilding it structurally, they're rebuilding it spiritually. And they've got all this um, to do and they face some opposition and some people tried to stop the rebuild and then there's this internal strife and Nehemiah is kind of managing all of it and Nehemiah is is hoping and praying that I gave up 12, year, 12 years of my life to rebuild this city, maybe this is the page turner that will make all of God's promises come true for the world. So they've done the thing, they've built the wall, they've started Jerusalem, they've reinstituted the temple, they've renewed the covenant that they have with the Lord, we looked at all this. And then this is how we see the story in. That's what we're gonna read today is the conclusion of the story. Last week we saw Jonathan Nash preached to us about the celebration. They had this huge party, the trumpets and the party and the dancing and the festival. This is the new beginning. And it ends, chapter 12 ends on this huge high note. All the joy, they said, the joy could be heard for miles away in Jerusalem. And now we get to chapter 13. Most of us wanted this, the story to end in chapter 12, but we're gonna read how it ends and said, how did the rebuild project work out? So here we go. Nehemiah chapter 13 starting in verse four. We're gonna just gonna read a few little chunks of this. This is the assessment of how things are going at the end of the story. So starting in verse four, we're gonna read four through nine first. It says, now before this, 
Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who, were, and who was related to Tobiah, Paul's. Tobiah's a hater. Tobiah's an enemy of the Rebuild Project, if you remember from about six or seven chapters ago. He hated Nehemiah and what he was doing. So now wait, Tobiah is somehow in with the high priest. And the high priest had, verse five, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, that's a bedroom, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and, co and contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and, then I, and I then discovered the evil that Elijah had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay, skip down to verse 15. There's another assessment of how things are going in Israel or in Judah, the region. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when, the, when they sold food. Tyrians, that's people from the city of Tyre also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Okay, skip down, verse 28. There's another assessment, another lay of the land. How are things going? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, the Horonite. Sambalot, the Horonite, is the main hater. He is the main enemy of the rebuild project from seven chapters ago. Therefore I cleansed him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. It's the word of the Lord. Okay. Need to do a brief just recap in its context of what we just read, and then we'll head to the whiteboard. So Nehemiah, we're told in there, um, goes back to Persia, goes back to Babylon. Um, he got 12 years of PTO at first, and he goes back. He said, I told the king I would come back after 12 years, so I go back. And I'm back in the courts of Persia, and then I come back to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm checking in on the project. No one knows exactly how long he was gone. But when he left, they were all celebrating. When he left, they were all rejoicing. When he left, they were all promising to obey the Lord and to, and to be the people that God intended them to be. So he comes back after 12 years in Persia, and what does he find? Three things that we read. There's about 12 things in this chapter. I just picked three random ones. But here's, here's the first thing he finds that we read. He finds Tobiah. One of the haters, one of the people who threw stones, who waged war, who tried to destroy the rebuild project of Jerusalem. Tobiah somehow is related to the high priest, it doesn't say how, but the high priest, supposedly the holiest man in the city, supposedly the man who's supposed to guard the spiritual well-being of the people of God, has now given Tobiah a master suite inside one of the temple chambers. 
So he's turned a room that was meant for sacrificing and offerings and storing the things that would make them uh, clean before the Lord, and he just said, hey, you can throw all that stuff out. We don't really need that. But you know what you can put in there? You can put a flat screen. You can get a little fireplace. You can get a king-size bed or a California king. Like, we could, we could really set you up in here. So Tobiah, an enemy of the Lord, has a bedroom suite, a master suite, in the temple. Okay, you're not freaking out. That's bad, okay? That's not a good thing, okay? No one, please don't set up shop to sleep in here. Um, here's the next thing they find. He comes home, and he finds on the first Sabbath day that they have completely ignored the Sabbath, which was their very sacred day, and it, they've ignored the Sabbath, and now they're doing the marketplace inside the temple walls on the Sabbath day. Wine is being sold, and wine presses, and, and farmer's market is happening, all for the people's financial gain on the Sabbath day. And he's going, hey guys, remember three chapters ago when you promised to honor the Sabbath day now that you're back home? And also remember how 150 years ago your forefathers were sent into captivity because they weren't keeping the Sabbath day? Like we're in this mess because this was what we were breaking. And now you're doing the same thing again. And you're using it for your own financial gain. So he runs them out on the Sabbath and says, this shall not be so. And then to top it all off, the final little paragraph says that Sambalot, the main hater, the main enemy of the rebuild project, of the renewal project of Jerusalem, his daughter has now been given in marriage to the son of the high priests. So it's not that like these are like, it's not nationalism that this was a problem, it's that Sambalot didn't worship the Lord and there was not supposed to be any inner intermarrying between uh, believer and non-believer, but Sambalot, this hater of the project of the restoration that God was doing, has now intermarried into the high priest family. Like, Sambalot's at Thanksgiving dinner with the high priest. Like, he's, he's involved in the, in the happenings and has his way, has a say, is influencing the high priest. And so Nehemiah returns home to find this is the state of the city. This is the state of the people. And so if we back up the story of Nehemiah just a little bit, kind of get a 30,000 foot view of chapter 13. It's not just that chapter 13 is a bad way to end the story. Like, man, you know, I tried really hard and we almost rebuilt Jerusalem, but we, we went up some notches and we'll do better next time. It's that, no, it's not just Nehemiah that has been a rebuild project. It's, if you zoom out from the whole Old Testament, this was supposed to be the time that it all, like the world was made right again. God's people have returned home, it's a big deal. Nehemiah's given up 12 years of his life in a huge position of power and authority in Persia and he's given all this time to this we were rebuilding the city to be a holy people in a holy city, worshiping a holy God. We renewed our efforts. We renewed our covenant. We were gonna help you, Lord, mend the world. And this is how it turns out. How did it go? How did it turn out? What was supposed to be a fresh start, what was supposed to be another chance for the people of God to join the mission, ends instead with them breaking all the promises they've made to him, all of them, in the book of Nehemiah, any promise that is made by the people of God in chapter 13 is broken. It also ends with their enemies. Enemies of the Lord and his mission are now sleeping inside the temple, set up for their own comfort and ease and intermarrying with the high priest. This is the end of the story. There is not Nehemiah chapter 14. There are no more chapters, there are no more verses. This is how it all ends. If you remember from the beginning, chapter one, the weight Nehemiah feels to be the one to carry the mantle to restore God's people, not just rebuild the city, but rebuild the nation, this is how it ends. 
This is the conclusion. This is what Nehemiah has to show for his work. So this is, this is what's happened, and here's what we're gonna look at today as we join and can relate to Nehemiah. Here's what Nehemiah is bringing home with him when he comes to check in on it. He's bringing all of his longings. He's bringing all of his longings, all the things that he wanted to see happen, all the things that he hoped to see happen, all the things that he was dying to see happen. He brings all of his desire to rebuild the city. He brings all of his groans, like this is how it is supposed to be and I come back home from a trip back to Persia and this is what I'm looking at because what does he find when he gets back home? His longings have to meet his reality and his reality collides with his longings and they don't match up. What his longings wanted, what his, what his desires wanted was to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the restoration project happen and God to mend the world and shalom to reign and God's righteousness and justice to flow to the nations and he comes home and it's all in shambles. When the reality of Nehemiah collides with the longing of Nehemiah, it's not good. It's very difficult. And so here's the question for today. What do you do with that place? What do you do with the place when your longings don't meet or don't match up or don't line up with your reality? What do you do with the place when what you are so longing for, so desiring, so groaning to be real for your life, what do you do when your longings hit the wall of what is? That's what reality is, what is? What do you do with that place when these two things are not the same thing? This is what I want, this is what I long for, this is what I desire, and yet what is is not those things. What do you do when the things that you've pined for, hungered for, crash into the immovable object known as reality? What do you do when your longings and your reality don't line up? What do you do with the places where you've given everything and it still doesn't work out the way that you wanted? What do you do with your best laid plans falling short? What do you do with the places, because think about this now, if you've experienced this, if you've experienced the longings colliding with your reality and they don't line up, then if you know that place, go to that place in your mind where you've had to deal with that place. What do you think about the Lord in that place? Like, he's gone quiet on us? He's abandoned us? He's given up on me? This is, he certainly is far off and has forgotten about us? What do you do when the cancer diagnosis is heart-wrenching? What do you do when the memories of your trauma haunt you in the middle of the night? What do you do with the sin that you can't kick but keeps wounding you and wounding others? What do you do with divorce? What do you do with family relationships that are broken? What do you do with marriages that have gone cold? What do you do with injustice reigning in the city? What do you do with the poor and the marginalized being taken advantage of? What do you do with humans being trafficked in this city? What do you do with those that are taken advantage of? What do you, what do, you do? What do you do with the place where your longings and your reality are not the same thing? All the things that you are groaning to be real for you are not real for you. Well, it may sound trite, it may sound dismissive, I don't mean it this way. If you'll lean in, I hope you'll end up agreeing. 
But this collision, this place where these two things collide is the soil that the Bible says produces this word right here for the Christian, hope. And that may sound dismissive of your, what your reality is. We're gonna talk about this for a minute. But here, here's, what, here's what the Bible says, is that you can't know the power of this right here if you don't bring both of these things into the middle. If you don't honor the full weight of both of these things, what you long for, what you groan for, what you desire, and what is. See, because if you're gonna do this, here's what it would actually mean. If you're gonna bring the full weight of your longings and your reality, you have to do this right here. You have to be present, which is incredibly difficult to be fully present in this moment right here because what the present holds for us is pain. And so here's what you have to do. If you're gonna deal with reality, if you're gonna live here and you're gonna bring the reality to your longings and experience any hope, you have to get really comfortable with this. Not okay with it, not celebrate it, but you have to, you have to become well acquainted with grief, well acquainted with sorrow, well acquainted with the pain of your longings not matching your reality. You have to deal with the pain and the loss and the woe and here's what makes it more difficult, and this sounds taunting, but it is actually what happens the more we become present, is that the more I become present with these things, here's what else I have to realize, is that it, they actually keep going and they don't stop. Becoming more present with my pain and in my reality doesn't make my pain and my reality go away. It actually keeps me in the present, which is where pain is. It keeps me so present with the way that things haven't gone the way that I wanted to, that I actually, then I have to, here's what I have to deal with. If I'm gonna be present with my reality and in the pain, here's what I have to, here's, what, here's the acknowledgement I have to make. Everything I love, I will lose. Everything I hope for, I will not get. Which means I have to continue to be present with that pain. And if you want me to keep being present with the pain, I have to acknowledge that my present is not what I want it to be, and so I'm gonna keep having to become more well acquainted with my woe and with my sorrow and with my loss. Everything you long for, everything you love will eventually wear out. And so then dealing with reality on a regular basis looks like you and I becoming less and less surprised that suffering exists that potentially, we're, we're not necessarily the first individuals, but we're certainly the, potentially the first culture in the history of the world. Think about this now. The first culture in the history of the world that thinks I can become savvy enough, smart enough, rich enough, spiritual enough to never have to go through this. If I could just like work it right, if I could just do it right, if I could just read enough, earn enough, buy enough, sleep around enough, think enough, be wise and shrewd enough, maybe my path of reality won't include any of this. And then when we experience this, we get confused because we thought I was supposed to be savvy and wise and smart and rich and good enough to not have any of this. So what's wrong with me when this starts happening? What's wrong with me when my reality doesn't look like my longings hope they would? Real, bad, horrendous, painful suffering is inevitable. It's unavoidable. If you don't believe me, ask Nehemiah. This is the guy, Nehemiah, Nehemiah did nothing wrong. Nehemiah was a great dude, and in fact, 
he maybe almost did everything perfectly. Now, he wasn't a perfect man, but what's recorded for us, he was righteous, he was just, he served the poor, he gave up his position to serve Jesus, to serve the king, to serve the Lord, to restore shalom. He did everything right. He did everything he was supposed to, and he gets back to Jerusalem, and his groaning for the people of God, for the mission of God, for the city of God, doesn't look like his reality, and he didn't do anything wrong to deserve that. Because suffering and pain and sorrow and loss and woe are unavoidable. And if you don't acknowledge that, you won't be living here, because that's reality, that it's coming if it hasn't already. So what we're tempted to do when our reality is full of pain, when our present is full of pain and full of sorrow and full of loss, here's what we tend to do. This is a coping mechanism. And if you've done this, I'm not shaming you. We all do this. Here's what happens. If I am going to refuse to bring my reality into the collision and the place of hope, I will short sell my reality. I will short sell and not let hope speak into it and I will get stuck in a place called despair. Because, think about this now, if all you have is this side of the board, if all you have is your reality, if all you have is your present pain, it is full of despair. This is all there is. And so what we do is, because this, this can sound like a taunt, is don't talk to me in my pain, don't talk to me in my present tense about what I want. Because I want too much, apparently. You wanna know what I want? I want my reality to look different. So it'd be way easier, maybe some of the pain will go away if I just quit acknowledging what I do desire and what I do long for and what I do groan for. Maybe my reality will be less severely painful if I just ignore this. But if you ignore this, if you ignore what you really desire, if you ignore what you truly long for, you won't have any of this. And reality without longing is despair. Despair is the place I go when reality and pain are too much to bear. Despair is the place I go when I have a reality that is so excruciating that it feels like a mockery or salt on the wound to even ask me the question, what do I groan for? What do I long for? Those desires could never be met anyway, and so I will ignore my true longings. I will ignore my deepest longings, not my lusts, we'll talk about that, but I will ignore those things, I will forget about that side in order to not have to keep feeling the loss of those things. And so, if I'm gonna be in a reality with no hope, if I'm gonna be in a reality and ignore my longings, despair is the only option. But on the other side of this paradigm, if I only spend time in my reality present with the pain, and I'm really present with what is, and I will end in despair. But if I come over here and I go, well, I don't wanna deal with reality, I just wanna deal with my longings, what I want, what I groan for, what I desire, but I sell that short of my reality, here's the only option, is that I will end up living an incredibly shallow or numb life. Here's how that works. If I take my longings and I refuse to bring my longings to my reality, do you know what that's called? Fantasy world. I won't deal with reality because my reality never seems to meet my longings, so I will just only deal with my longings. I will just only let my longings guide me and dictate what I do and where I choose to pour out my longings, and that will turn you into a very shallow or numb person. 
if you want to know where addictions come from, if you want to know where all our vices come from, if you want to know where all of our missteps come from, if you want to know why you keep doing the things that you're doing that are destroying you, it's this. Because I'm refusing to deal with the pain of the present tense and I'm only going to obey my desires and my groans and my longing. Or as Paul says in the New Testament, your God is your stomach. Like I will only listen to what I want. I will only obey that. So here's the question for you. Because short-selling my longings to never let it collide with reality leads me to a shallow place, here's a question for you. Do you know what it is that you desire? Not what, not what you lust after. Do you know what your real longings are all about? Do you know what the human heart was built for? Not the places where you've tried and failed to satisfy those desires. Not the places that you think you know what you want. Do you know the longing that is underneath all of your wants? Do you know what it is that you really long for? What it is that you really desire that's driving you to the places of shallow living? And that's everything from overworking to a pornography addiction to neglecting my friendships. Anything that you would say short sells your longings and turns you into a shallow or numb person. Do you know what it is that's driving that place? Do you know what it is you really long for? I could go to lots of places in scripture to answer that question. Proverbs 19 has the shortest way to answer that question. Proverbs chapter 19, 22. What a man or woman, what a human being desires is unfailing love. Proverbs 19, 22. What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be a poor man than a liar is how that Proverbs ends. Is how that proverb ends. What I long for, what a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be a poor man than a liar, meaning this. It's better to be poor than it is to lie to yourself about the fact that what you aren't after in every single interaction is unfailing love. That's what you want. And you can numb it, you can ignore it, you can try to satisfy it with any, any vice, anything you choose. But what you are after in every breath you take, every screen you look at, every bank account you're jealous of, what you are after is not more of those things. What you're after, what the, the longing that is driving you to go to all those things is unfailing love. Or in the words of G.K. Chesterton, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. This is what you want. This is what you want. So here's the question. Do you, do you know that's what you want? And if you know that's what you want, do you know the pain of having to bring the full weight of what you want into your reality? Because if you don't know that, then here's where you're living. This is where you're at. If you don't know that this is what you truly want and you don't know that bringing that deep desire into your reality will not satisfy you, then you will just come here and try to satisfy it with a bunch of other things. And so we can ignore either side. The problem with um, knowing that that's my desire is that I can't, it's like trying to stuff a beach ball underwater. Like it just, it just, it will come out. It just seeps out of you seeps out of the culture. If you've got ears to hear it, eyes to see it, it's in every book you read, it's in every song you listen to, it's in every concert you go to, it's in every Netflix show you stream, it's in every party you attend, it's, every, it's why you go to the school you go to, it's why you have the job that you have, it's why you raise your kids the way you raise your kids, is because what you are after is this right here. Will something love me unfailingly? 
Will something love me and never let me go? Maybe if I get married, it'll make me feel that way. Maybe if I have kids, it'll make me feel that way. Maybe if I get that promotion, it'll make me feel that way. Maybe if I sleep with this many people, it'll make me feel that way. And every time you bring your full weight of desire into a non-reality, because those things won't do it, you'll end up here. What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be a poor man than a liar. You can choose either side of the board. And I don't say that in the sense of like, hey, if you, if you came in here and you're experiencing the shallowness of a life that is short-selling its longing and not dealing with reality, then shame on you, get out of here. I'm also not saying that if you came in here full of despair that something's wrong with you. Here's what I'm saying. These are the indicators. These are the check engine lights. These are the places where you know now what's actually going on in me. Here's what you know. Do you, are you living a numb, shallow life? Are you full of despair? Here's all that that means. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you came on, you need some hope. The power of hope can actually resurrect you out of both of those places. But you can't have hope if you're ignoring either side of the board. The only way to have hope, the only place where hope grows is when I bring the full weight of my longings and don't ignore them, and I bring the full weight of my reality and don't ignore it. It's in that place that hope is born. It's only in the collision of longing and reality that I am held in this biblically beautiful place called hope. Because hope allows, hope calls, hope demands that both of these things be honored in their fullness. You are invited to bring the weight of all of your longing and not deny one ounce of what it is that you want. And you are invited to bring the full pain and be present with reality. And to hold those two things in tandem is, where, is the only place hope can grow. It's the only soil that hope can grow in. Hope is the place where I'm free to look at the pain of what is while also denying that I long for something so much more. And hope is the place where into the darkness of my present reality, I don't have to be given to despair because my hope is set on something far greater than my current reality. My hope is set on a place and a day and a kingdom that one day will satisfy all of my deepest longings. One day will satisfy all of my deepest desires. And so I don't have to, I don't have to um, pretend like the despair isn't real. I just am encouraged and upheld by hope that says, even though my present pain is this real, I, my hope is not in my present. My hope is not in my, my current reality. My hope is in something greater. And so I can live with the pain of my reality and not lose hope. This is the place we find Nehemiah at the end of his story. He is holding this tension together. Now you may think I'm reading too much into it. Let me, let me try to put this in perspective. He tells us, he tells us this. He tells us that he's holding these two things together at the very end of the story. Look at the last line in the entire book. Nehemiah 13, 31. Will you throw that back up there? This is how the story ends. It's the conclusion of Nehemiah. Remember me, O God, for good. Okay. Here's what he just said. Let me translate that for you. Remember me, oh God, for good. Lord, I came home and I brought the full weight of my desire and I wanted all the right things. I gave my life away to you and I came home and my reality didn't match it. This did not go the way that I wanted to, but I know the story's not over. But I know that the one who holds the pen is still writing it. So he's saying to him, remember me, oh God, for good. 
Because I believe, God, that you are a God that keeps his promises. I believe, God, that you are a God that doesn't forget. I believe, God, that you have a story yet to be told. And I'm asking you, as that story unfolds, remember me for my good. Because I, Nehemiah, have hope that the story is not over yet. And so I'm looking at the, the wreckage of Jerusalem. It's terrible. If you were an Old Testament Jew, if you were an ancient Jew, you would read Nehemiah 13 and vomit at the things that they were doing. This is a desecration of the holiest place in the world. And Nehemiah's going, I gave my life for this. I left everything to come and do this, and it isn't what it is. But Lord, remember me one day. Remember me for good. He's got the full weight of all of his disappointments, the full weight of a life and a storyline that did not go the way that he wished it would, but he did not stop hoping. He did not deny his longings. He did not let the pain of the present stop him from holding on to hope. Which is why it's so very fitting that the story of Nehemiah ends uh, for us uh, right before we enter Advent. See, when Nehemiah ends, that, that line, remember me, O God, for my good, is the last piece of any story we have in the Old Testament. There was one minor prophet, Malachi, written after Nehemiah, like 10 years after, after, after Nehemiah, but the end of the story of Nehemiah is the end of the story for Israel. This is the last thing that anybody says in, in like a narrative form in the Old Testament. The story of Israel at the end of Nehemiah is over in the Old Testament. And this is how it ends. It's not good, it's, it's not the way they wanted it to be, it's not the way it should be. And the story of Nehemiah bumps up against what is known as the 400 years of silence. It's really about 450 years. But what is known as the 400 years of silence is this picture of the way that the story of Israel was supposed to go and it's been in a decline ever since the start of the story. Since Genesis chapter 12, it hasn't gone the way it was supposed to. And so, Nehemiah isn't just, it's not just that his story didn't work out the way that he had hoped. It's not just that his story didn't work out with the renewal project he had longed for. It's that the story of Israel's over. And then there's 450 years of silence before the Lord will do or say anything to his people. The people of God go four and a half centuries without hearing a word from him. And so it's up against that void, it's up against that darkness that Nehemiah is holding on to hope that the Lord has not forgotten his people or his promises. And so four and a half centuries go by and the world would be turned on its head by the way the Lord ended up remembering his promises. 450 years go by and the world would forever turn on a different axis at the arrival of, at the advent of Jesus. Jesus is who Nehemiah and the world was hoping for. Jesus is unfailing love incarnate. You see, here's where Nehemiah's hope was directed, was to Advent. Now, he didn't know that in the way that we define Advent, or the way that we uh, have semantics around that word, but let, Nehemiah's hope was in an Advent. Because here's what Advent meant in the ancient world. The Bible didn't invent the word Advent. Advent simply means the arrival. Advent simply means the appearing, and here's where it, where it came from, is that people were awaiting the arrival or the appearance of a noble or a dignitary or a king or a queen to come to their village. And that arrival was called the advent. When is the king going to advent? When is the king going to arrive? And they didn't know, so they're just waiting and waiting and, and hoping and hoping and hoping. The people of God were waiting and hoping on an advent of a king. And so Nehemiah, when he says at the end of his story, 
Remember me, O God, for my good. He was hoping in Advent. So now as the church, thousands of years later, Advent is the part of the calendar year where the church pauses. It's typically between Thanksgiving and Christmas, those four Sundays, where the church pauses to remember the coming of Jesus. We pause to remember the first Advent, but it's so much more than setting up manger scenes and singing Christmas songs. It's so much more than sentimentality. Advent season is not about your nostalgia. Advent season is not about you and your Christmas traditions. Those are great and you won't find anyone who loves them more than I do, but they're not about that. Advent season is when the church is invited into remembering the collision of all of Israel and all the world's longings and the reality of what was, and into that darkness is when Jesus advented. Into that hopelessness is when hope was born. Into that longing and desiring and reality not meeting up is the place that Jesus was born into. We're invited into remembering not just how bleak the story of Nehemiah was, but how bleak the story of the world was. And it was into that place, it was into those groans that the advent of Jesus came. The advent is about remembering our hope. And we remember that we're not the first ones to hope for an advent. But see, now the church The modern day, the present day Christians, believers in Jesus, we don't remember the first advent just to get sentimental about Christmas. We remember the first advent to give us some hope that maybe the second advent will happen too. Maybe, 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 maybe he's not a liar. Maybe, maybe, maybe he hasn't given up on the story. Maybe, maybe, maybe he is coming back. And just like Nehemiah and everybody in his time had to look in hope to the great advent, we do too. So we retell the advent story to give us hope to believe that it would happen again. So here's what I would imagine you're asking. How do I hold on to this hope? How do I I put my fingers around it and, and grasp it and never let it go? How do I not fall into despair or shallow living? Maybe a better question would be this. How do I let hope hold on to me? How do I get out of the sea of despair and how do I not settle for shallow living? Well, hope, by definition, uh, hope, the hoping one doesn't have what it hopes for yet. That if you have something, you are done hoping for it. And that's what Nehemiah was facing. My reality doesn't look like what I want it to, but I'm hoping that the story isn't over yet. I'm hoping that my reality will change one day. So what did he have to do? What, what does sitting in the place of hope require of the hoper? What does one have to do if you want to hold on to hope or have hope hold on to you? What do you have to do? Let me reread for you the words from our call to worship in Romans chapter eight that Jonathan read for us, mainly because most of y'all weren't here. <laughs> I'm kidding, uh, but let me reread because it's very fitting. Listen to this, this is, what does the hoper have to do? We throw up verse 24 of Romans eight. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. You can't hope for something you already have, but if you hope, if you'll dare to hope, here's what you're saying you're willing to do. You are willing to wait 
which nobody likes to do. Do you know why nobody likes to do it? Because if I'm gonna wait in hope, if I'm gonna wait while I hope, guess what I have to get really familiar with? Guess what I have to be okay in being well acquainted with? All of my pain. Because to wait and to wait well, we don't even like waiting at the DMV, much less on the cosmos to be renewed. Like we don't, we don't have time to wait because to, to wait means I've gotta get really in touch with how sad and hard and sorrowful and woeful my life has been because my reality doesn't line up with my desires. And so if I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna let hope hold on to me, I, this, I have to be able to do this. I have to be able to say, I will wait on you, Lord. I will wait. I'm not talking about like waking up at 5 a.m. and praying and then all of your hopes come true by lunchtime. I'm talking about do you know that the life of a Christian, the Christian life is a life of waiting. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your longings aren't met yet because your reality isn't what it's supposed to be yet. And so we wait. We wait. Hebrews chapter 11, if you read the Hall of Faith, all these saints in the Old Testament, there's dozens, you can read about them. Here's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about, and it says it over and over again. If, go read Hebrews 11 today. Here's what every saint of faith, one, they were all sinners, so that should give you some, some, some freedom. Here's the other thing. Do you know what they were all really, really good at? Do you know what every saint's biggest muscle was? This one. They were all waiting. They were all waiting on something. They were waiting, 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 waiting. They got really good at waiting. But if we wait, it means we'll be present with the pain. It means we'll be present with our longings. And we will choose not to settle for either place. I will wait, I will wait. I will wait and not choose to satisfy my longings with shallow things. I will wait, I will wait, and I will not be given to despair because I know the story is not over yet and I will wait for that story to be true. In fact, let me, let me just tell you this one and it's hard to even talk about it because he was such a dear man whose family was here this morning, but Ben Ellis, who's a saint of this place, passed away five and a half years ago. Uh, he taught me this almost a decade ago. He taught me this. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for hope is the same word for wait. It's the same word. You can't hope and not wait. You also can't wait well and not hope. It's the same thing. Now he's waiting for us. But to truly hope means you will wait and you will wait well. It also means that when you're given to despair, you're given to shallow living, it means that you know that what I'm not doing is choosing to wait. What I'm not doing is choosing to hope. And if you're willing to sit with the pain, if you're willing to sit with your longings, then you're getting awfully close to hope. And you're getting awfully close to working out the muscle of waiting. And so just like Nehemiah, we're waiting too. Here's where it's a little bit different. Unfailing love has come but we now turn our hearts as a church to when he will come again. Nehemiah didn't know if he would ever come. He was hoping for it. Remember me, O oh God, for good. Now we know he has come, so we rehearse the story in this season to remember that he has come and he will come again. And when he advents again, when he advents again, when your, when your Jesus advents among us again, when King Jesus brings his kingdom in its fullness, your hoping will be over. He will be the end of hope. But until then, we wait because all of our longings and all of our reality will be what we have been waiting and hoping for. So Christian, this is a season, 
is a season for the next five weeks to practice waiting. And I want your house to smell like a Christmas tree. I want all the decorations that can happen. I want all the traditions. I love them. No one loves them more than me. But they're invitations to enter into a season of waiting. Like this is why it's so magical for kids waiting on, on Christmas Day. Because now, like, they're already talking about it. What are we gonna get, what are we gonna get? What are, like, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait for Christmas Day. And this is where we practice it too. We practice the art of waiting. We practice the art of, like, not trying to fulfill my longings instantly. We practice the art of being present with the pain. We wait, we wait, and while we wait, we hope. We hope in the Jesus who is the answer to Nehemiah's longings and is the answer to ours as well. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we, we are not good waiters. Would you give us the strength to have hope hold on to us in seasons that are, that are bleak, in seasons that are, that are dark? Would you give us the courage to be present with the pain knowing that there is a hope that one day this story, one day our reality will have no pain. One day our longings will be met when Jesus, when you return, and bring your bride home. Carry us until that day, we pray, Jesus, and make us good waiters with patience. We ask of you in your name, amen.